There's an old American Indian legend that tells of an Indian who came down from the mountains and saw the ocean for the very first time in his life. And awestruck by the sight, he requested that someone give him a quart jar. And as he waded knee-deep into the ocean and filled the jar, he was asked what he intended to do with it. Back in the mountains, he replied, my people have never seen the great water. I will carry this jar to them so that they can see what it's like. Before he died, Pope John was asked what church doctrine needed the most re-emphasis today. You know what he said? The Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, attempting to preach, as I said before, such an enormous topic as the Holy Spirit is like trying to capture the entire ocean in a quart jar. Really, it's impossible to do it justice. In fact, by attempting to explain him in human terms, we almost do an injustice. How can the infinite be described by the finite? How can one harness the wind? At the same time, though, I believe that God has placed within his children this unsatisfied hunger for a closer walk with him. Is that true? You want a closer walk with God? We secretly long to experience more of him, to have a greater understanding of who he is and what he's like, to embrace him wholeheartedly and not to fear him as if he were some sort of loose cannon unconcerned about our safety or our sanity. In a personal and provocative letter written to his pastor and close friend, one man Put it into words what many of us feel, I think, in our hearts. Bear in mind that this man is not what some would call a charismatic Christian. He is a conservative evangelical Christian businessman who is not afraid to put his finger on a nerve and push. This is what he wrote. There's a yearning in the evangelical world for a greater sense of intimacy with God. I believe we have had too much head and not enough heart. People are intrigued now with the Holy Spirit, like the proverbial moth and flame. They don't know how close they can fly without burning their wings. They're attracted to the flame for some unexplainable reason. Still, they are frightened by the Holy Spirit. There is a fear among us evangelicals that we have missed out on something spiritually. The abundant life we've sought is not altogether fulfilling. There is a craving for spiritual intimacy with God that is seldom, if ever, satisfied. Could it be that what is really missing, the thing that would give us an appetite for daily prayer and Bible study and personal dynamics, is the empowering of a more profound measure of the Holy Spirit? He asks. Don't we need to let the Holy Spirit out of the closet? Good question. Evangelicals may have believed the spiritual world is flat, that if they sail too close to the edge of the Christian experience, they'll fall off the edge into emotional oblivion. So we've run away from all but the most intellectualized expressions of the Spirit as though he were some kind of sea monster. 
evangelicals are reasoned believers, almost too logical, yet we've always suspected that too much emotion has been let out of our Christian experience. Many of us yearn for spiritual passion, which has become only a flicker of light to be turned up several notches. Somebody with evangelical credibility needs to tell us that it's okay to get closer to the flame. Maybe God still works miracles, at least in some measure. If not, then why do we pray for God's help when we are sick and diseased? Are our prayers for God's intervention merely psychological games that we play on ourselves, knowing that God no longer acts decisively, much less miraculously in our world today? Evangelicals are secretly concerned that we have become deists who think God's last acts were a few miracles after the resurrection. Since about A.D. 70, has God gone off into the back room, leaving blind spiritual and physical laws in control? Isn't there an option besides deism and Oral Roberts? Interesting question. Can we free God to work proactively in his world? Let's face it, the charismatics scare us, he writes. We are secretly relieved when fringe nuts like, and then he names a few, have their sordid laundry aired out in the press. The truth is that mainstream charismatics are also embarrassed by such extremists. Let's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, he says. How would a new, unintimidated theology of the Holy Spirit change our experiences in worship, in prayer, in witness, in spiritual confidence? Some of us, he concludes, need a revolution. It's true. Now, I get the sense that this man has a spiritual pulse, don't you? And he's concerned that it be kept alive. I can relate to his emotion. Can you? For some, it is scary to think about the Holy Spirit that way, isn't it? What if the Holy Spirit were to get a hold of you, get a hold of this entire congregation simultaneously? Praise God. We so-called conservative evangelicals want everything neatly packaged, don't we? I'd say Baptists in there, but I think Baptists are even in another camp altogether. We want it neatly packaged. We want it explainable. We want it definable. We want it controllable. We want God in a bottle. But I ask you quite sincerely this morning, who among us can control the wind? Who among us can bottle the ocean? Now, please don't think I'm getting a little too close to the theological deep end here. I have no intention of leaving the theological moorings that Scripture has put down. I am committed to this word, hook, line, and sinker. But this word is a deep, deep well. It's a deep ocean. And most of us have been content just to fill our quart jar. We've never gone past our knees in it. None of us should be content with that. There is always more to learn and infinitely more to experience and apply. Amen? 
I agree with something Chuck Swindoll once wrote. He said, as long as you keep the plumb line true, just remember that you may have a great deal of space between where you are and where the Spirit wants you to be. We're only as close to the Spirit as we choose to be. I'll say that again. We're all only as close to the Spirit as we choose to be. And for most of us, there's a lot of space. Whether it's the fear of the unknown, the straitjacket of tradition, or maybe even the obstacle of our own personal excuses, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are the ones who have put distance between us and the Spirit's transforming fire. We're the ones who have done it. It's time to eliminate that distance. Because the Spirit is never satisfied with the status quo. He's in the business of radically changing people's lives. That's his desire. That's always been his desire. The focus of the Spirit is the transformation of your life and mine. Whenever the Spirit enters the life of a person, there will be, mark it, there will be radical transformation. It is inevitable. It happened in the Old Testament, it happened in the New Testament, and it happens today. Because as the Scripture states, for I the Lord do not change. With Him there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's what the Scripture says. So if that's the case, what do we need to learn? When the Spirit enters a believer's heart, it is a defining moment in a person's life. Or at least it should be. It was for an Old Testament man by the name of Ezekiel. And it was also true for some New Testament disciples. And we're going to juxtapose two different texts of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, to, to illustrate how God the Holy Spirit works the same in both. And I would like to, I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel first, chapter 1. And I want to suggest at least five radical changes that occur when the Spirit truly transforms a person. Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me read a few verses just to give you some context here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's reign, Jin's reign, exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. I'll skip down to verse 26. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. 
Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Underline this. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. I want to suggest these five transformations, five changes that occur when the Spirit truly enters a person. And the first one is this. The, the Holy Spirit will transform our human arrogance into authentic humility. That's the first thing that takes place. Verse 28. When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. If there's one thing that the Spirit seeks to do, it is to make us recognize God's complete and utter sovereignty and holiness. He reveals to us that in the face of God's plans, in the face of God's wisdom, that we are powerless, absolutely powerless and ignorant in the face of God. In the presence of his power and holiness, we are put in our proper place. In Ezekiel's case here, it was flat on his face. Almost without exception in the Bible, whenever a person recognized that he or she was in the presence of God, human arrogance gives way to authentic humility. Overwhelmed with who God is and how unworthy and incapable they were to stand before him, all pride gets cast aside to the wind. Think about the examples in Scripture. Abraham fell on his face. Moses removed his shoes. Isaiah pleaded for someone to take a coal and cleanse his lips. And he fell on his face and said, I'm undone. I'm coming unglued, is what he's saying. Peter in the New Testament, the first time he recognized Jesus was something other than just this carpenter, begged him to depart from his boat, saying, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John recoiled in fear at the voice of God. Saul of Tarsus collapsed in the street, and the Apostle John fell as a dead man on the Isle of Patmos. Different reactions, yet identical realizations that in the presence of God, all of our knowledge, all of our man-made theological structures, all of our preconceived ideas, and our self-induced overinflated ego unravels before him. You agree with that? In the presence of the Almighty, we come to the crashing realization that we are physically weak, need, and spiritually sin-drenched people. Now let me ask you, have you ever been in that place before? Ever? Because it's not a pretty picture. I don't think people actually want to do that. It's just a natural reaction 
to being, to recognizing you're in the presence of a holy God. And I think because it's not a pretty picture, that it could very well be the reason why so many people hold back from getting close to God. Yet it is precisely to that point that the Spirit wants to bring us first. He must bring us there first. It's only then when our human arrogance is transformed into authentic humility that we become useful to God. The beauty is, is that he doesn't abandon us there, prostrate on the ground, face first. The second thing that the Spirit does is he transforms our human frailties into supernatural abilities. Famous Hollywood producer once said that for a movie to be successful, it must start with an earthquake and work up to a climax. In order for our spiritual lives to be successful, you know what it has to happen? It has to start with a heartquake, shaking loose all of our pride and a climactic realization that the Spirit brings transforming power. Why is it that when we come to Christ, that is like a life-transforming decision, but then it goes downhill from there? It should not do that, right? It should become more and more vibrant, more and more passionate, more and more powerful. God's holiness put Ezekiel on his face, and it was only God's spirit that could put him on his feet. Look at chapter 2 now in Ezekiel, in the first two verses. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. What a contrast here. Ezekiel is shaking in his proverbial shoes. God speaks to him. He gives him instructions, then fills him with power to carry them out. And you know what he calls him? He calls him a son of man. Notice that. Son of man, stand on your feet. The Hebrew there is ben Adam, son of Adam. The Living Bible paraphrases it in a perfect way. The Living Bible paraphrases it like this, son of dust. And that's a great description of what we are. Without the breath of God, we're nothing but dust. A lump of dirt, that's all you are. A lump of dirt without the Spirit of God. By calling him a son of dust, it's as if God was reminding Ezekiel of his human frailty. In fact, that's exactly what he was doing. He reminded him of it over 90 times in this book. God initiated Ezekiel into the ministry by showing him first that it was only through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that he would accomplish what God had called him to do. And it's the same thing for you and for me. As believers, God has something for each one of you to do that will influence eternity for God, for God's glory. You have a mission that will change the world for Christ. I didn't hear any amens for that one. You have a mission that will change the world for Christ. Do you believe it? 
What are you doing about finding out what it is? You will never accomplish any part of it until the Holy Spirit enters you and transforms your life and makes you realize that it is only by his power and only by his grace that you can do it. You may think, well, what can I do? I mean, I don't have any talent, really. I don't speak eloquently. I don't play music. I've never taught anybody. I can't heal the sick or raise the dead. I can't do anything. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, neither could the disciples. At least not until the Spirit turned their human frailties into supernatural abilities. I'd like you to hold your finger in Ezekiel chapter 1 and turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let me read to you out of the New Living Translation a little bit of this text. On the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection... The believers were meeting together in one place and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm in the skies above them and it filled the house where they were meeting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Godly Jews from many nations were living in Jerusalem at the time. And when they heard this sound, they came running to see what it was all about. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And they were beside themselves with wonder. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in the languages of the lands where we were born. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the area, areas of Libya towards Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabians, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful thing, things that God has done. An amazing thing. What about those guys? You know, we have read this text so often that we have romanticized it and, and made it like a Hollywood movie. Make no mistake about it. The first Pentecost will never happen again quite like it did there. But don't miss the principle behind the passage. These were ordinary human beings who were filled with and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and they were never the same after that day, ever. They began carrying out what Jesus had sent them to do. Not because they discovered some renewed sense of motivation, but because they were changed people. We forget that. We don't see these guys as being a bunch of regular guys. Author Robert Coleman removes the blinders and takes away the halos we've assigned to them. This is what he says. He says, what is more revealing about these men is that at first they do not impress us as being key men. None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men, probably having no professional training beyond the rudiments of knowledge necessary for their vocation. 
Perhaps a few of them came from families of some considerable means, such as the sons of Zebedee, but none of them could have been considered wealthy. They had no academic degrees in the arts and philosophies of their day. Like their master, their formal education likely consisted of only of the synagogue schools. Most of them were raised in the poor section of the country around Galilee. And apparently, the only one of the twelve who came from the more refined region of Judea was, guess who? Judas Iscariot. By any standard of sophisticated culture, then and now, they would surely be considered as a rather ragged aggregation of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and had all the prejudices of their environment. Yet, in short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of the lot of society in their day. Not the kind of group one would expect to win the world for Christ. You know what they were? They were weak, frail human beings, sons of dust, just like Ezekiel just like you and me. All of God's servants are. And on that day, they were, by the way, a minority in the land, a minority. And yet they turned the world upside down. Why? What was the secret? The same thing that transformed Ezekiel's human frailties into supernatural abilities and will transform yours and mine as well. It's the living power of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us needs a personal Pentecost. All of us need a personal Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's primary focus is the transformation of your life. He transforms human arrogance into authentic humility human frailties into supernatural abilities. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit transforms our human uncertainty into a spiritual identity. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 2 and look at verse 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, son of dust, I am sending you to the sons of Israel to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. You shall say to them, God told me to tell you this. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. There's one sure result when the Spirit transforms your life. You will be identified. You will be marked. You'll be identified. The Spirit never transforms us solely for our own pleasure or for our own blessing. He transforms us for God's greater glory. Amen? He equips us to spread his word and to bring glory to Christ. That is one of the criteria by which we must test every movement and ministry that springs up. Is it bringing glory to God or is it bringing glory to self? We are people sent by God. 
God's call put him on the field. Do you view yourself as a sent person? Do you really? Do you actually have the sense that God has sent you to do something with a purpose? Because as disciples of Christ, we are unleashed into a world which is stark, raving mad at God. Aren't they? They are. Look at verse 4 again. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As a young boy, I loved to leaf through Life magazine. Any of you remember Life magazine? Raise your hands. Yeah. Shows the age of the congregation is increasing. You know, it was, it was a big magazine. In fact, they re-released it a few years ago for a little while. A big magazine with great photographs in it, right? I never read what was in it. I just looked at the pictures because they were so stunning. Well, I remember vividly this classic picture of a gang member surrounded by his peers, squarely facing the camera and thrusting up a defiant middle finger to the lens of the camera. That is the picture of what Ezekiel is writing about here. Of what every unbelieving generation has done to God from Ezekiel's generation right to ours. It is a world that has given God the finger. And he has released us, you and me, and commissioned us, you and me, to proclaim the gospel of salvation and point people to his living word, Jesus Christ. And that is a little unnerving to say the least, isn't it? Listen, there is no more difficult or painful responsibility than that of speaking to people who are unwilling to listen or to hear. But when God sends, he also empowers the Holy Spirit is the transforming power that allows us to accomplish this astronomical commission in the face of such defiance. After this radical change in the normal way of life, Ezekiel probably didn't look any different to his peers physically. He didn't automatically become an expert on every subject. He didn't become culturally sophisticated or intellectually astute. He was the same on the outside, but transformed on the inside. And the results of his ministry, by the way, would be discouraging at best. It's not like this guy had a huge following. Ezekiel was never the pastor of a mega church in the old days of Israel. It was just the opposite. And as one of his contemporaries who experienced the same thing, Jeremiah Lamented before God in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, I answered, who would listen to me if I spoke to them and warned them? They're stubborn and they refuse to listen to your message, God. They laugh at what you tell me to say. You see, nobody in Israel here wanted to hear what Ezekiel had to say. Nobody wanted to hear it. They didn't want to hear, thus saith the Lord. Today it would be, as I said, Jesus said, or the Bible says. You ever walk into 
a place and say, the Bible says, what kind of looks do you get? Or Jesus said, what kind of looks do you get? It's exactly what Ezekiel got. Only worse. They probably wanted to kill him. But you know what? He was compelled to speak anyway, even in the face of that opposition. And they would know that a transformed man, a prophet, would be in their midst. You know why? Because God's word put him on the foundation. God's word was his foundation. And that's the pattern of a person whose life has been invaded by the spirit of God. He's identifiable as having been with Jesus Christ and he doesn't mind the ID. He doesn't mind the badge. Remember the disciples cowering in the upper room, hiding from the public right after Jesus was crucified? You know, the last thing that they wanted was to be identified, especially being identified with Christ. But what happened after the Spirit entered them? What happened to them? They hit the streets not fearing the opposition. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Let me read you a few things out of the book of Acts just to give you a smattering of what's going on here. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you so amazed at this healing? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witness. Look at verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 4, uh, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Skip down to verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. And he is the stone which the builders rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. 
began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Look at verse 18 now. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, I love this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we can't stop speaking about that which we have seen and heard. I love that. Remember John 15, what Jesus said to his disciples, said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. It's just what was happening here. And you will testify also... Why? Because you have been with me. Because you've been with me from the beginning. Listen, friends, we are up against it too, aren't we? Like Ezekiel and the early disciples, we've been sent to a society that is obstinate and stubborn and rebellious. They no longer know how to blush at sin. They don't want to hear about the truth. And they certainly don't want to see it operating in your life. They don't on a daily basis. But when your life has truly been transformed and invaded by the Spirit, people will see it. They will begin to recognize that you have been with Jesus. Not because you carry a thick Bible around with you. Not because you can spit out memorized verses with no feeling by rote. Not because you dress differently than they do or speak in Christianese, churchy language, but because you have been transformed from the inside out and you do not shy away from being identified with Him. The Spirit not only transforms our human uncertainty into a spiritual identity, but fourthly, The Holy Spirit transforms our human insecurity into a confident stability. Just flip over to Acts chapter 5 for a moment. Look at verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Would you say that? Would you say that if your boss came up to you and said, I'm sick and tired of you talking about Jesus around this office. If you do it again, you're fired. Would you say, sorry, I must obey God, not you. See, there are two kinds of courage, writes William Barclay. There is the reckless courage, which is scarce aware of the dangers it is facing. That's reckless courage. And then there is the far higher, cool courage, which knows the peril in which it stands and refuses to be daunted in the face of it. It's that kind of second courage that the disciples, transformed by the Holy Spirit, displayed. Notice, instead of running from the public, they ran toward the public after the Spirit inflamed them. 
Instead of hoping not to be seen, they exhorted total strangers to repent. Instead of being frightened by insults, warnings, and threats, they stood face to face with their accusers and they did not blink. And when told to keep it quiet, they answered unflinchingly, we must obey God rather than men. We need to remember who Peter was talking to when he made that statement. You know who he was talking to? He was addressing the wealthiest, most intellectual, most powerful audience in the land, the very court which condemned Jesus to death. That's who he was talking to. The old fisherman who once cowered at the inquiry of a courtyard servant girl stood before them not as their victim, but as God's unmistakable voice. What changed him? What changed him? He knew he was taking his life in his hands. God's word put him on the foundation. And it is an incredibly supportive foundation. Amen? Now you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. Russ, this is all well and good. Well, how do I see this in real life today? Well, we can go to the desk out there and look at the faith, you know, the voice of the martyrs articles that we can read about the martyrs being put to death for their, for their faith today. But even that is so far removed from us in America. Let me give you, I want to tell you a little story about how the Spirit is operable today. In America, not in a 15-year-old, not in a 20-year-old, not in a 40-year-old, not in a pastor, not in some big, burly, old bath iron worker that got saved and now is standing before people and boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. This happened to a 92-year-old woman, a frail woman by the name of Pauline Jacoby, had just finished loading her groceries into her Toyota Corolla at the local Walmart in Dyer County, Tennessee. She got in her car, and a moment later, a man climbed into the passenger side and shut the doors. He had a gun, and he said he was going to kill her if she did not hang, hand over her money. And what she did next did not involve pepper spray or martial arts. <laughs> but it did save her life, and it may have saved his soul. This is what she did. He was bundled up, she described, with a thick, heavy jacket and cap. And he said, give me your money. And I said, no, you're not getting my money. I didn't have anything more than a $10 bill. But I didn't want him to get my medications. Twice, the man, who Jacoby said appeared to be in his 50s, demanded the money. The third time, he said if she didn't comply, he would kill her. And then the good Lord took over, Jacoby said. I said, if you kill me, I'm going straight to heaven. If you kill me, you're going straight to hell. <laughs> this is a true story. You can watch the video of her interview on YouTube. She said the man looked at her as her words spilled out. You look like you've had an awful time in this world, Jacoby said to the man. And as bad as that is, it's nothing compared to hell. Hell is much worse than anything here. 
Jesus is sitting in the car with me, she told him as he glanced in the back seat. <laughs> He'll protect me if you kill me. I'll go to heaven. And Jacoby said she was looking intently at his eyes during the whole conversation. He had such sad eyes, she said. The cap over his face made him look unkempt, but his eyes weren't mean looking. I asked him his name. He said it was Ricky and he was from the halls. Ricky, you drink, don't you? Asked Jacoby. He said he was hungry. I said, if you don't spend your money on drink, you'd have money for a meal. Then I asked him, Ricky, would you like to go to heaven? Yes, I would, he said. But I'm afraid the Lord won't take me. Yes, he will. He'll take you if you believe. He'd save you right here and now. All you have to do is believe in him and accept him as your savior. She said he told her he didn't know how to pray. She said, oh, you can pray anytime you want. She said, anytime, anywhere. And after a brief silence, Jacoby told the man that she was going to give him what little money she had. Reached into my purse and opened the clutch bag and pulled out what I think was the $10 bill. I said, Ricky, I'm going to give you money. Don't spend it on liquor. Get something to eat. Jacoby said, Ricky hesitated. I want you to have it, she said. You weren't going to take it away from me forcefully, but I'll give it to you willingly. And the guy started to cry. And he leaned over and gave me a kiss on the cheek, she said. And he opened the door and walked into the night. Police report notes from the video surveillance of the parking lot said that the man was in Jacoby's car for almost 12 minutes before he exited. Recording also shows several dozen shoppers walk by the car during the time Jacoby was ministering to him. She could have screamed for help. A member of the First Baptist Church for more than 70 years Jacoby said she frequently prays, asking for ways to bring friends and family closer to the Lord. I do think maybe this was it, she said. <laughs> Careful what you pray for. See, it can happen today. It wasn't anything more than the Holy Spirit's power that did that to her. Friends, you and I may never have to stand testifying for Christ with our lives hanging in the balance, but every day we stand before somebody. We stand with something on the line, whether it's a job or a reputation with our friends or a relationship at school or credibility with our family members, whatever it is, it takes more than just the power of positive thinking. It's infinitely more than a matter of self-motivation. When we're faced with a situation similar to Ezekiel's, it's going to take a lot more than intestinal fortitude. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6 says this, And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a, re a rebellious house but you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. You might be in the midst of an attack yourself, painful attacks, possibly by your own people. You are not alone. Remember, as a Christian, you're not a slave to people. You are a servant of the king. You are not a slave to people. You're a servant 
of the king. If we are sent to speak for him, then it's him that we must seek to please. You know, it takes a powerfully transformed life to stand unflinchingly before the world. There are thorns and thistles and scorpions everywhere, but transformation is the Spirit's focus. He transforms our human arrogance into authentic humility, our human frailties into supernatural abilities, our human uncertainty into a spiritual identity, our human insecurities into confidence, stability, and the last thing is that Ultimately, the Holy Spirit transforms our human discouragement into faithful perseverance. Verse 7, you shall speak my words to them whether they listen or not, for they're rebellious. You know what? God's power enabled him to finish because Ezekiel endured. He prophesied to a hard-hearted people for 22 years. The New Testament disciples also endured. Once transformed by the Spirit of God, they never quit until martyrdom finally silenced them. Christianity has endured. Through countless waves of oppression and violence against it, it remains strong and will remain until Christ returns. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And friends, those who are transformed by God's Holy Spirit will endure until God's plan for you is complete. You can count on it. There's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, wrote Victor Hugo, and that is an idea whose time has come. Friends, the Holy Spirit is much more than a good idea. He's the power that will transform your life and mine, and his time is come. You know what the greatest need in the world today is? The greatest need in the world today and in the church is men and women transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And my question as you leave is, will you allow him to transform you?